Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds. So now that we're in the midst of this crazy pandemic, if anyone has an interesting line of sight onto changing patterns of consumer behavior, I would figure it was you, uh, Ken. Have you, have you noticed anything unusual in, in the data about the way people are changing their behavior? Uh, well, Mike, it's a great question. The, maybe let me take it from two parts. One, kind of what we've seen more holistically in the data, and then two, maybe let me personalize it a little <laughs> bit and, and, and talk about the changing expectations in, in my own family. So if what we've seen overall is, is a massive shift to digital, let me ground that for you a little bit. In the first quarter of 2020, um, we've seen a larger shift to digital payments uh, in those 10 weeks than we've seen in the preceding five years. So that's a, a massive and, and seismic shift. But also COVID, because it's gone on so long and we've adjusted to new normals, it, we've also built new behaviors. Um, so actually, it's not just the shift towards digital payments, but it's, it's the length of time that people have thought, operated, and acted in a different way. We now know that 7 out of 10 consumers worldwide are saying that the shift that they've made from physical uh, payments from, from cash uh, as a kind of a primary mechanism for payment into a digital equivalent is actually now a permanent shift. And about half of those, so 7 out of 10 of me, uh, you think it's permanent. Uh, but about half of them are, are actually planning on going uh, nearly cashless overall. Right. So, uh, and then to personalize it a little bit, Mike, um, and, and I, I assume my story here is probably somewhat similar to many of the others. If I look at my own family and, and I look at my, my wife and, and children, I mean, we are on first name basis with the delivery guy at this stage. He, he frequently <laughs> stops by our house maybe three, four times a day, delivering everything from groceries that we have ordered remotely through to you know, new set sneakers and, and runners. The, and, and also, I don't think my story is limited to kind of my generation. I'm in my 40s. Um, my kids are in their early teens. But if I, as I look at my mum, my mum has gone from, tell me how to use Amazon Prime, right, at the start of the crisis, to now being a guru and kind of recommending objects to the rest of us. So we've seen a generational shift, I think, as well, both within uh, my family. And I think that's echoed probably in the, in the broader world. I'm talking today to Ken Moore, who's the Chief Innovation Officer at MasterCard and also the head of MasterCard Labs. And uh, Ken, it's great to, uh, to finally meet you. I, I've been following your story with some interest uh, you know, for a considerable time. And, and I guess really my, my opening question is, uh, why did MasterCard need Labs? What is its role within the organization? Sure, sure. Um, great question. Great place to start the conversation, Mike. I think maybe a couple of things. One, if you look at financial services in the world overall, the pace of change is, is accelerating, right? The time we have to spot a, a change in behaviors and emerging technology, a macroeconomic trend, and then react is far less than it has ever been before. So the pace of change is fast. Also, the, the needs of consumers and businesses is kind of evolving, right? It, it, the the asks on service providers are not the same today as they were even five years ago, right? We're seeing this massive, massive quantum kind of leap forward in, in expectations driven by experiences and other things. But then also, if you look internally, you look at MasterCard, most people associate us a cards company. And, and that's a history that we're, and, and, a, and a key part of what we are today, and we're very proud of it, but it's only part of what our company is. 
I would more properly define us as a technology company operating more broadly in commerce. And rather than just serving clients in um, retail banking and, and merchants and acquirers, we now serve a broad range of clients that have different needs. So we serve governments, mobile network operators, telcos, fintechs, business banks. So MasterCard is much, much broader than just a card company. And as we've moved into those new markets and served those new customers, we've had to build new products and services. We've had to create new things. We've had to take some risks. So that kind of brings it down to kind of what is the role of labs then within MasterCard. And the way I think about our role is uh, we're the R&D arm of the firm, right? We build, we do many things, but we one of the key things we do is we build new products and services. So in a company, that's pioneering and jumping into new client segments, requiring new products, you, know, you, you naturally need to either, you're a new entrant or you're a disruptor, right. right? So we need to have a capability to build products and services that are gonna excite and delight new, new types of customer segments. So when we talk about labs, we talk about we de-risk the introduction of new things. And the word risk is very important in that. I mean, I want to I want to come back to this risk point, but but I, I'm particularly interested in this this idea of you know Mastercard as a technology company primarily. Yeah. I mean, the the, the turning point in many ways, I guess, was uh, around 2006 when Mastercard went public. I mean, prior to that, it really saw itself as a, as a as a brand company, um, and and it was only really in the last I guess 10 to 15 years there's been that that shift to technology and platforms. Has that been culturally challenging for the organization? I mean, has it been culturally challenging? Um, any journey is, is fraught with risks and takes time. We've had to bring in new skill sets. If you look at MasterCard today, we've got about 18,000 people and we're about a $340, $350 billion company, right? So that's a very, very sizable company with a headcount and workforce that it probably looks somewhat disproportional if you care if you compare us versus maybe some of the banks that we serve and partner with uh, as clients and that kind of tells you because the, the kind of headcount to, to kind of uh, uh, market cap ratio is a little bit more akin to what you would expect in some of the, the technology players and, and the digital giants and that kind of really reflects the journey that we've been on so we've been changing our workforce We've been adding new skills, uh, bringing in and, and hunting for people in, in new areas. Even more recently, as we stepped into multi-rail and into ACH, you know, we've been acquiring companies that, that bolster our skill sets, bolster our capabilities. So I don't, has, it been, has it been a concerted effort is probably a better way maybe of framing the question, Mike, and it absolutely has. This is a journey that, you know, We've, uh, we've taken over many years now, but we feel we are in a really, really good position and in a really good place at the moment. Many traditional organizations in that moment of transformation sometimes sort of spin all their disruptive, dangerous people and, and put them in an innovation or digital division. And, and sometimes it works, but sometimes it can be a, a bit of a disaster. And I guess when it does work, it's because that division has managed to bury itself deep in the organization. It's not like an, an adjunct. What have been some of the things that MasterCard Labs have done to make sure that it's really an integrated part of, of not just the financial ecosystem, but the internal ecosystem of MasterCard? Sure. I mean, I, I absolutely have some characters and we're delighted to have them in MasterCard Labs, <laughs> but, but I, I, I don't think all the disruptors in the firm are within labs overall, although we do have our fair share. 
Um, I, I really think that one of the things that has defined our culture over the past couple of years across the whole company is this approach to thoughtful risk taking. I, I think the idea of move fast and break things is, is gone, but that doesn't, because too many people have been on the front pages of too many papers for doing bad things, but that doesn't mean you can't be agile and, and, and nimble in your operating model in the products and services that you've built. So we've cultivated a culture of very thoughtful risk takers right across uh, MasterCard and indeed um, within labs. So I, I, that's maybe the way I, I would kind of frame this, uh, Mike, overall. Um, and then when you look within labs itself, and as you start to get into how we work and how we, you know, um, how we de-risk new things, the happy to talk about that a little bit yeah. if, you, if you'd like to go there. Yeah. So, so one of the things, so we, we, we serve four roles in, in the organization overall. One, we're the R&D arm. So we build new products and services. And that's the bit that I'm going to come back to in a second. The second thing is, is we, we work hard to kind of position not just our firm, but also our clients against emerging technology. So we lean in to a lot of change that's out there to see how do we best position ourselves. Also, we're, we're partner oriented to our core, right? We, we've always been a B2B to C or a B2B to small B company, right? So everything that we build sits on a shelf unless that middle B can consume it in some way. So another role of labs is to actually help our partners be more innovative. And, and we can come back to that if you like and talk about how we do that. Um, but then lastly, it's about continuing to evolve and enhance our culture itself, which sounds kind of fluffy, but actually when you break it down, it's about building new skill sets, new connections, new ways of working and cultivating ideas right across the, the firm and giving them a, a kind of a channel to kind of uh, to bear fruit through. But let me come back to that piece around um, risk taking, right? So is every new product and service in MasterCard in labs? No, right? Because we have product groups, we have a large O&T organization, um, and, and they are really, really good at doing new things around our existing products and services. But as you move away from those existing products and services, you start to take on risk. Now, risk can be expressed in a number of different ways. It can be client market fit. It can be solution uncertainty. Maybe that's technical. Maybe it's operating model. Maybe it's go-to-market or regulatory or compliance. Or it can be commercial uncertainty. So where risk expresses itself, labs is more likely to be engaged. And our role is to de-risk those new things. So we do everything that's required to take an idea from the back of somebody's mind uh, right through a kind of a structured process that probably no, looks no different to anybody else's process, right? So frame and research through um, uh, concepting, prototype, market test, launch, and then scale. Um, but we take it through that process, and we're really trying to do three things as we do that. And we talk about these as the kind of three lenses of new product creation or the three lenses of innovation. And those are the framed around the three big risks. Desirability, so are we building something? We're a scale business. Are we solving a problem that is material to people and that lots of people care about? Um, I once heard an analogy from a guy called uh, David Kidder, who I worked quite closely with before, and I think he's a really good thinker in this space. And, and David talked about, um, I'd much rather be in the business of selling painkillers than vitamins, because vitamins are elective. You take them today, you forget <laughs> tomorrow, you largely don't care, right? But you're in pain, you will take a painkiller. And I think the point he's making there is materiality. So. When you're setting out to be innovative, innovate in spaces that are material, where, where the pain or the opportunity is really felt in a material way by clients 
and in a business like ours, if I lost the client. Um, the second, so that's the desirability lens. The second lens is really around um, kind of feasibility. So how feasible is it for us to create a solution? And this, this talks to technical risk, technical uncertainty. A lot of what we do is leaning into new technologies, the artificial intelligence, blockchain, IoT, 5G, lots of new areas. And there's always technical uncertainties around some of those. Are, are you too far ahead of the curve, right? Um, the other risks represented are in compliance, in regulatory, in, in go-to-market. Do you build something? Do you buy it? Do you partner for it, right? Do you rent it? Hmm. Um, so there's kind of risks that express themselves around that. And then lastly, there's the, the commercial model risk, right? Are, are we doing enough to create value for a client that they will be prepared to share value back with us in some way? And can we make that clear through a value proposition? So do we have the confidence to say, we're gonna create this for you, but you're gonna then therefore pay us that. So those three lenses, uh, Mike, are how we kind of think about the journey of any new product or service through labs. And really the role is to keep those in balance as you go through framing and research through concept and prototype and across the different stages, because when they run out of balance, that's when bad stuff happens, right? right? Where you're, you're stuck with a bunch of assumptions um, around what you think a client might need, but yet you've already built solutions that are over there. That's the risk. In many ways, this is the same challenge that big traditional banks are having with, with, with product innovation. Mm-hmm. And for them, do you think a, a similar approach would be warranted, which is you've almost got to triage opportunities to figure out, you know, do they belong in the, in the high risk, high reward category where you need a special kind of unit to deal with it and the sort of the the low risk execution driven opportunities that are really just part of the product team yeah so this is a really interesting question and 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 it it talks to i mean i i had the the, the benefit of, of of running innovation and running a labs organization in in another company at, at city the financial city, right? crisis yeah at citigroup yeah, yeah at citigroup you know fantastic company um but through the depths of the financial crisis and what i really learned there was the uh, the importance of kind of a, a constant uh, pipeline of new products and services that were being delivered by labs. I, I think had we constructed a pipeline where we were taking entirely moonshots, right? we were betting on futures that were three and five years away, I think it would have been very hard to sustain and indeed grow uh, the labs organization within City as we did. Instead, what we did was we said, you know what, the answer for whether we need high risk uh, high risk kind of high payoff uh, opportunities, whether we need all of those or whether we need to really just innovate around what we do today, it's not one answer. It depends on what you're trying to be in, in a particular space. And that's really what led us into, in both City and indeed in MasterCard, who embraced this from, from the get-go, into the definition of portfolios, right? And, and a portfolio is a, a kind of a framing of strategic invent, intent. It's a framing of common client need, and it's a framing of what's going on in the world, made real into a kind of a container that has a particular purpose. So we have seven odd innovation portfolios across MasterCard at the moment. And we can talk a little bit about some of those if you like, but each of those then has the right, each of those, Mike, to come to answer the question directly, has a balance around, you know what, for this particular portfolio here, I really want you to focus on tomorrow that's three years away. And in this other portfolio here, because uh, maybe you know maybe it's a new market or and it's focused around a, a, you know a, something that's newer to us. We really want you to bring it in a little bit, and, and we really want you to be delivering more adjacent innovations 
to things that we have today where your time horizon might be one or two years. So I find the, the portfolio concept is a really good container to figure out where do you play? Do you go horizon three or do you pull it right into horizon one? Rather than just saying a company level view, I think that complexity exists within a company and that portfolio is a good way to kind of recognize and deal with it. And is, it, is that where traditional banks often get it wrong, that they're either not swinging for the fences, looking for a big enough opportunity, or they're putting all their eggs in one basket and just hoping that's going to pay off? Yeah, I, I don't know that, that they get it wrong any more than anybody else gets it wrong. I, I think one of the mistakes in, in organizations running labs in the past was that they indexed too much in one way or the other. Right. Um, the, so you either get uh, labs that really don't take much risk, so they start to look like products or they start to look like O&T over time, right? Or you get labs that take in only risk, right? The horizon free moonshot. And that's fine when things are good. Or, or your Google. Or <laughs> your Google, right? Um, the, and you have the balance sheet to, to kind of carry it indefinitely. But I, I, I think most people have found those models, either the one that's too close to today are the one that's too far out to be able to predict. Uh, most of them have found that challenging. So I, I think a better model and, and one that is started to emerge more broadly is this balanced one where rather than define that at a company level, you define it at a strategic objective level or at a portfolio level and, and you take and you adjust appropriately. But also these aren't static things. These are these are living things. So you know as we as we you know build beachheads and build new products and services in new areas, we adjust our portfolios on the basis of that, but also within the portfolio, you know, there might be 10 new products and services being built in an average portfolio. We're constantly making decisions around, you know, to achieve the objectives of the portfolio, should we kill that and double down on this, right? Should we merge these two things together? Should we creatively collide them so we have a platform play? And that's the kind of nimbleness that you really want uh, in, a, in a portfolio. But it also takes away, Mike, and this is a really big lesson that I learned over my career. It, it, if you ask people to just do projects, what happens is people become emotionally connected to that project. And, and they won't always, they see their future success in the organization as tied to the success of the project. So sometimes they, they're not well positioned to make an assessment around, well, actually, project's going okay, but that project's going better. Should I close off my project and actually divert resources over there? It's a very human and natural thing to do. Elevating people from individual projects and saying, no, you run a basket of projects and we want to empower you to make the best decision to achieve the objectives of the portfolio level really gives them much more latitude to make a better decision. And that, and that really has come through as well. That, that's interesting, though, because that's quite different to the traditional agile methodology where you sort of attach to one sort of sprint. And as you say, you risk getting attached to it. Yeah, it, it is. But, um, but also, remember, portfolios are, are kind of connected in some way, right? So they're connected to the overall corporate strategy or they're leaning in, into a particular technological trend or to mm. a macroeconomic trend. So the projects within it, therefore, have associations. So the learnings from one, whether those are good learnings or bad learnings, can be transferred to another. Now, it's really important, regardless of the portfolio that you're running or the project that you're running, that you do run it in, in, a, in a modern way, whether that's a, a mix of lean startup and, and agile, or even if it's just uh, you know, CX or UX principles kind of deployed on something that you're working today, how you work is critical regardless. But that's kind of, you know, bread and butter. That's table stakes nowadays. <laughs> um, or should be, or should be. Um, 
the will be for all of your audience, Mike. Um, so that's table stakes. So now when you when you kind of have a new way of working that allows you to uh, define and test hypothesis quite quickly and to progress projects in a kind of a lean startup type way, then how do you actually move from individual projects into this higher order thinking around portfolios and being able to say back to your executive team, you know, we, we believe we will be able to create this amount of value, you know, this year, next year, the year after. How do you have the confidence to say that? You've got to move away from individual thinking at individual projects level and actually look at the collections of projects at a portfolio level and how we can make those effective trade-offs. So when you're thinking about some of those future journeys, what's your vision of, of how things are going to play out for the consumer uh, over, over the next few years? I mean, you've, I've, I've, I've seen you write about hyper-personalized experiences, you know, which, yeah. which is a great concept. It's something that I, I wrote about as well when I, um, in my last book, I talked about algorithmic experiences shaped by AI and data. Which, which I think is very similar. Could you unpack your, your idea a little bit though? Yeah, sure. So um, what we've seen over the last while is, uh, and this is true across sectors. I, I'm, I'm, uh, you know, we, we've seen it in, in clothing where people are personalizing shoes. We've seen it in cross-border travel where people are looking to kind of personalize the experiences. We've seen it in restaurants and, 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 and retail. So right across the board. But the same is true in financial services as well. People are looking to kind of move beyond one flavor of a current account or a checking account, one flavor of a loan, um, one flavor of the way they can pay for a good or a service, right? Consumers expect the companies that they work with, the brands that they work with, to know them. But now to know them in a, in a safe way, right? And then to be able to tailor the experiences that they deliver. Now, that wasn't possible before. It wasn't possible without having a thousand different products, which becomes internally very difficult to manage because it creates a huge amount of operating cost and complexity within the organization, which ultimately you know, results in costs to the consumer. But now, as we've moved to API service orientation, as artificial intelligence and data has become more embedded, we've been able to create the technical tools that allow us to deliver both the experience to customers, but also the, the hyper-personalization. Now, as you step into the kind of the future of payments and, and you look at the impact of COVID on, on what's happening in this space, that journey will continue. But even when you strip that away, the, the future of money really is faster, safer, borderless with consumers in control. That's really the future of money. And what we've seen is, uh, as we talked a little bit about at the start, that massive shift uh, towards digital over the last while. Yeah, I mean, you know, one example of that to my mind is the the work you did for the launch of Apple Card. You developed the tokenization yeah. technology, uh, which got rid of those crazy numbers you see on the front of cards. <laughs> um, which, which, you know, if, if you're a millennial, I mean, the idea of reading out numbers on a phone, you know, to pay for something is is sort of, I mean, you might as well like, you know, be be giving like your your left kidney in order to pay for something. It, it's 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 strange. So one of the one of the paradoxes for me is. When you look at a lot of these next generation services like Uber or Netflix or iTunes, actually you don't, they work when you don't even pay attention to the payment, when it, when it disappears into the background. If that's true, what does that mean ultimately the future of payment brands? Uh, I don't think that puts us in a bad place, right? I, I think uh, a couple of things. One, I, I completely agree that, you know, we've done a pretty good job of working with some of these partners you you mentioned i think apple uh, apple card which we launched 
late last year, and, and, and then in Samsung Money, which we launched this summer, right. both of which were built on top of MDES. And what MDES does is it really provides the foundation for secure transactions because it's replacing that card number that uh, you and, and, and a lot of other people ha- you know, really struggle with, with, with a token, with a secure token. And uh, MDES, we have out with 2,600 issuers. We've got a, a 1,200 token requesters. And many of the big digital giants use that infrastructure to deliver those experiences. So when, um, when I say that the future of money is faster, safer, borderless, and inclusive with, with consumers in control, it doesn't mean that, that it has to be a, a very conscious and deliberate step within a process, right? As we move towards that experience economies, the, the boundaries between the steps in a process should start to blur a little bit to the point where you don't think about it so much, yeah. right? But am I worried from a MasterCard perspective? No, because it comes back to that culture of thoughtful risk-taking. You know, we believe many of the technologies, many of the trends out there are inevitable, and therefore we lean into them. We find a way to make sure that, that if something's going to happen anyway, we find a way to make sure that we can help those partners that are leaning into that same technological trend. And MDES is an example of how we've done this, where we've created that tokenization software, where we've made it available to some of the brands where three years ago, you might've been asking, are those guys gonna disrupt us, right? Instead, we found a way to partner effectively with them, where we really focused on the needs of consumers and creating value for the brands that also want to serve them with us. Does that really show the way to the future that, you know, rather than seeing MasterCard as essentially a, a card company that you're using a card to pay for something, that you're now a, really a platform that enables these hyper-personalized experiences to happen at scale, whatever you happen to be doing? I agree. Um, I, I think that's right. And, and let me kind of give you an example of that. I mean, a, a couple of years ago, uh, about five years ago, we started leaning into um, fintech, right? Into, into largely at the time startups, right? Pretty early stage startups. So um, uh, kind of seed stage uh, companies rather than series. And at the time it was about trying to identify what people are doing out there with, a, with emerging technology and see where we could you know, create partnership opportunities for us. But as that program from a start in kind of 2014, 2015 has moved forward, what we've seen instead is banks saying, hey, you guys see broader than me. You're looking at 2,000 fintechs every year from over 100 countries. I don't have that lens, right? But I know I need partnerships with these types of companies to create the experiences that my businesses and that my consumers are going to need in the future. So we've morphed and evolved our StartPath program, which is the program that we use to reach out to those fintechs, to now also source later stage companies and to actually connect them to our clients. So we are a convener, we're a network in a different way, right? Where we're creating a platform with something that a third party does, together with something that MasterCard does and helping connect that to something that one of our clients do, a retail bank, another merchant, a government, a a business bank, an M&O or a telco, and bringing that all together. And that's really the ecosystem really coming to play. Another example, Mike, if, if you like, is in financial inclusion, where the problems there are, are thorny, right? They're, they're deeply ingrained. They've been very resistant to change over the years because the economics of actually getting into and solving some of those problems are very, very difficult, right? You, you've got philanthropic endeavors, and, and, and that's a really good thing. But for kind of more um, kind of traditional uh, banks and governments, it's been hard. 
to really make a dent in those people that are financially excluded are you know, partially financially excluded. And there again, I, I think you need to take that ecosystem play where you don't just solve it maybe for say one sector like uh, agriculture, schooling or insurance or right. um, maybe micro small enterprises. You actually have to take a whole of ecosystem approach and say, do you know what? Somebody who has a very, very small store in maybe Kenya um, wants to get paid in a certain way. But if that money comes to them digitally and they have to pay their school fees through cash, you know, that, that's not going to work, right? So you have to bring the different parts of the industry together. And that's what we've tried to do uh, through Community Paths, where we have successful businesses in each of these individual sectors. And we're now bringing them together into an ecosystem play. And we're making that open and available to partners to come build with us on that journey as well. Talking about other foreign ecosystems, when you look at markets like China, they've got a radically different payment universe. It's like a parallel mm-hmm. universe uh, to the point that if you're not actually using um, you know, apps like you know, WeChat or Alipay, you, it's very hard to even participate uh, in the economy. Which parts of, of that experience do you think are going to end up being relevant in the West? Do you think we're going to see elements of that or do you think it's just going to be like a sort of a Galapagos Island where it's, a, it's just a totally different world? Well, China is, is a key market. I mean, I, I'd nearly broaden your question to say if you look at emerging commerce surfaces, right? Because yeah. you're right that points of interaction looks very, look very different in, in China and people are used to paying with new form factors like QR and, and in other things. But in the Western world, we're, we're, we're now starting to see, you know, a uh, frictionless checkout. We're now starting to see new forms of commerce where you walk down Rodeo Drive, you go up to a shopfront window and without ever going into the physical store itself, uh, and, and you can actually scan and search for goods and services. You recommendations engine that say, hey, Ken, this pair of shorts would work well with that T-shirt. That is, by the way, a service that I'm personally particularly <laughs> keen on because I have no fashion sense whatsoever. My wife will tell you that and she makes me say it on all of these calls. But I, so I think in the Western world, there's a set of trends that are emerging as well, um, in addition to those coming out of China. They're just starting in a different place. So, And I put all of this together into kind of emerging commerce surfaces. I, I do think that the types of experiences that we have and, and bring it into augmented reality, into virtual reality, you know, we've been building and deploying solutions now where we recognize that physical retail space is expensive and, and that problem is going to be possibly exacerbated in the future. People are not going to have you know, a, a warehouse of inventory sitting b- behind the, the kind of small retail store at the end. So how do you bring augmented reality in there where maybe there's a small number of items in, in the store? You can go in, you can virtually try those on, but also you can drop in through your camera phone and visualize um, actually you know, the same product, but in blue or you know, a slightly different product. The, those experiences are real in the Western world now. We've deployed them in, in MasterCard, working with many of our partners in the US and, in, and beyond. We've got artificial intelligence deployed at, at drive-ins and, and fast food restaurants. We can say, I'm hungry today. It knows who you are. It knows what you've ordered before. It knows today is sunny. So there's no point in probably trying to offer me a curry, right? Um, instead, we're going to offer you something that maybe you know, is, is more appropriate for you. Or you can say things like, I'm trying to watch my waist and adjust your menu as a result of that. So. These experiences coming out of the West or the East, I think they're all going to have their, their play and they're all going to have their purpose in this new world. And I bring it together into this new, you know, what are the emerging commerce surfaces that when we look back five years from now, we're going to see. 
And I think it's going to be a mixture of East meets West. Presumably this AI is smart enough to, to realize when you're a hungover Englishman and I'll serve you the curry anyway. Yes. It is. <laughs> <laughs> um, you, you know, finally, Ken, just to bring it back to our innovation discussion, you, you mentioned before that you had seven portfolios. Was that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do, do you mind just summarizing those quickly? Because uh, I, I think it, it captures a lot of this sort of future journey that, that we we're just speaking about. Sure. So, so we've. Uh, I'll give you. I'll give you a few, uh, Mike. We have one around strategic growth, and and, and strategic growth for us is uh, an area where it's focused on a couple of different things. One, um, we have a goal as a company to financially include one billion consumers into the formal economy. We used to have five hundred million. We we achieved that goal, so we we basically doubled it, right? Uh, and fifty million businesses, and those are kind of small uh, businesses who have struggled currently in the pandemic, right? Uh, it also, so that's one key part of that portfolio is building products and services that create new behaviors with both small businesses, my, typically micro businesses, but some small businesses too, and consumers in developed or disadvantaged situations. The other part of that portfolio is about smart cities and, and how do we build relationships with governments and municipal authorities where we can use data to create new experiences for citizens to connect up infrastructure. And that talks about smart transit, smart ticketing, smart systems. The point in calling this strategic growth is these are ecosystem plays. They're harder to do. They take longer to, you know, to generate kind of you know, commercial returns. We see them as super important though. So we wanted to make sure, let's just, let's, let's box that off in a way where we understand it so we can lean in there. So that's a portfolio. Um, we've got a second portfolio around identity. Um, the, uh, you know, if there's a lot of adjacencies to payments in particular, but identity is one of them. And I mean identity in its broadest sense. I, I used to say identity was a three-legged stool. And then as I started reaming them off, I went identity of people, identity of companies, identity of devices, and identity of things. And that's four. And I said, okay, I can't call it a four-legged stool because somebody said, no, that's already been named, can't call it chair, right? So I said, well, a four-legged chair then, right? So we really wanted to lean into all of those businesses together because we didn't want to choose to say, no, we're just going to be identity of people. Let me give you an example. Uh, we launched a solution and we've been really pleasantly surprised by how quickly this is scaling called uh, MasterCard Provenance, right? Um, and what Provenance does is it puts a digital identity on a physical thing. So whether that's a t-shirt or a pharmaceutical drug or a, an item of food, and it tracks it from production right through to consumption right across the supply chain. Right. And in a world where governments are trying to figure out where's my stuff, this is really, really important. Is it counteracts uh, counterfeit, fraud? It brings in data and analytics on the supply chain to make people make smarter decisions. So I'll pull back goods that were going to go over there, and I'm going to divert them over there because I know where my stuff is. That's an identity business that sits alongside personal identity businesses that we've also built. So putting identity as a whole, recognizing the four-legged chair, that's a portfolio because it groups those ideas together. And then we have you know, five others, Mike, but just to <laughs> kind of make it real um, through kind of two for you. Ken, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you very much. My pleasure, Mike. Have a good day. You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash between worlds.